Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm April Domboski. For nearly two decades, Dr. Robert Pearl was CEO of the country's largest medical group, in charge of 10,000 doctors. He realized to improve care for patients, doctors need to reevaluate the cultural norms they've been conditioned to accept. He says it's a culture defined by repression and denial. In his new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, Pearl argues that to fix the American healthcare system, we need to fix physician culture. We'll hear his critique of medical values and beliefs and how they can be changed. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm April Domboski. In various health surveys, Americans say they love their doctors, but they hate the healthcare system. Insurance companies, hospital accountants, they're the villains, while doctors are the heroes. But what if doctors are part of the problem? My guest today, Dr. Robert Pearl, says physician culture is also to blame. It's a culture that thrives on repression and denial and an obsession with status. These silent values lead doctors to be resistant to change and reluctant to admit mistakes. And everyone suffers the consequences. Dr. Pearl has written about this in his new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Dr. Pearl also teaches business and medicine at Stanford, and for 18 years, he was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, where he oversaw 10,000 doctors. Dr. Robert Pearl, welcome to Forum. Thanks, April. It's great to be here this morning. It's great to have you. And I'd like to begin our discussion by having you define what physician culture is. And you do this nicely in the beginning of your book with a story, the story of an obstetrician, Dr. Semmelweis. And in 1844, he noticed one out of five women in the maternity unit were dying after childbirth. And when he tried to find out why, he discovered that the cause was doctors. Can you tell us what did he figure out and how did other doctors react when he explained it to them? At the time, the most common reason women died during and after delivery was puerperal fever, an infection of the uterus that then spread to the body. And the thinking was that the cause were these smelly particles that drifted up from the streets below and women breathed it in while laboring. But what he couldn't explain is why in the adjacent facility, one run by nurse midwives, 
was mortality two thirds lower. I mean, he was the leading academic facility in all of Europe. And as often happens in medicine, serendipity helped him. A colleague nicks his finger while he's doing an autopsy on a woman who dies from peripheral fever. And he goes on not just to get a local infection, but to have it spread throughout his entire body and to die as these women had. And he hypothesizes that maybe it's not these particles drifting up, but maybe it's something carried on the doctor's hands or the leather aprons they'd wear at the time to cover their well-pressed three-piece suits. And he insists that doctors will change these aprons before they go into the delivery area, dip their hands in chlorinated water, and lo and behold, mortality drops from 18% to 2%. He writes it up in the leading journal. He writes letters to the paternity directors and try to imagine what happens next. Nothing. <laughs> no change happens. He dies four years later alone in a mental institution. If you look at the reasons we tend to think about medical problems happening, we think about systemic issues, money and time. There's no cost to change in the apron, no time to dip your hands in the chlorinated water and it still didn't happen. It's illogical, but the reason is obvious. It's the culture because doctors couldn't see themselves as carriers of disease and those leather aprons, they were symbols of experience and respect. The more blood, the more pus, the more guts, the higher the esteem, giving that up was not gonna be possible. And tens of thousands of women continue to die unnecessarily and 150 years later in the United States today, the leading cause of death in hospitals is hospital-acquired infection. The bacterium is called C. difficile, Clostridium difficile. Unlike the coronavirus, it doesn't go through the air. It's carried on hands of humans. And yet, one in three times, when doctors go from one patient's room to the next, they fail to wash their hands it makes no sense with the alcohol disinfectants. It takes no time. There is no cost. This is the pernicious role of culture. We'll talk about, I'm sure, the really wonderful parts of the culture. But this is the part where when someone goes on to die, everyone assumes it had to be someone else. That's yeah. the repression and denial you described. You, and this is history repeating itself. You describe in the book overseeing staff meetings where you talk about these statistics of the number of Americans dying today from doctors not washing their hands. And how, how do doctors react in those meetings? This is where physicians just don't see themselves as being responsible. But clearly, someone is and there are just so many more examples, April. I mean, it takes 17 years for a great advance in medicine to become standard practice. Or look at telemedicine. You know, during the pandemic, 60 to 70% of visits often were given by doctors using a virtual tool. But seven years ago, I wrote an article for Health Affairs where I predicted that telemedicine replaced 30% of what was in the doctor's office and nothing happened for six years until of course COVID comes along and the fear of catching this infection becomes so major that people have to close their office and use virtual care. 
Why is change so slow? There are always going to be systemic issues, but there's also the cultural ones. I talk about it as the caduceus, the symbol that everyone knows of the medical profession. These two snakes entwined around a staff. The snake, one snake is the system. One snake is the culture. You can't change one without changing another. Doctors tend to see the systemic reasons and they are all valid. But what they're not able to see are the cultural ones and those contribute as well. And we've got to change both, which is why I wrote the book, in order to change either. You know, you mentioned the pandemic and telemedicine. And one of the other things that really came up a lot during the pandemic was this notion of doctors being heroes. And you write about how young doctors are taught early on. They absorb this message in their training that they need to be heroes. And I'd like to play a piece of tape for you on this point. It's from a radio documentary by Kaiser Health News. They followed a young resident doctor, Paloma Marin Navarez, who worked in the ICU during the pandemic. And every day she walked by signs outside the hospital that said, heroes work here. And this really bothered Paloma. I don't feel like a hero. That's not me. I'm not doing the impossible. I'm not bringing people back. You know, of course, we're doing the best that we can. But at the end of the day, people are still dying. Now, Dr. Pearl, you can you can hear the internal conflict for Paloma over this expectation. What what can go wrong for patients when we ask doctors to be heroes? Well, a couple of things. First, we should, I, I want listeners to know that all the profits from this book, by the way, go to Doctors Without Borders. So it's, uh, it's really, for me, a mission that sits there. Uh, well, physicians learn in medical school and residency to never acknowledge the pain, to work to the limits of human ability I can't think of very many careers that, as physicians describe it, we've lowered the expectations of residents. They now only have to work 80 hours, which of course doesn't count the hours commuting and the time they're at home studying and preparing for cases and for presentations. I mean, it's a, when is a hundred hour week seen as an easy job? This is the culture of medicine and it's, a remarkable culture. And in the book, I celebrate the commitment, the dedication, the hard work. I mean, doctors come out of medical school with $200,000 debts and they move forward. But in this particular example, and I was moved by not just her words, but her voice and the pain she was feeling, I think it's important to understand that what physicians did is they went into battle without the protection they deserved. You know, there were not enough gowns, so they put on garbage bags. There were not enough masks, they put on salad lids. They knew that as they passed a tube through people's vocal cords into their lungs to save their lives, the patient would cough, spewing virus in their face. I mean, this is a remarkable culture. In the book I talk about my cousin who died early on from Hodgkin's lymphoma when we didn't understand how to treat it. And all we had were these terrible drugs that we administered to patients. And I remember his physicians at his bedside, they didn't shy away, but they also 
use this repression and this denial to not fully understand the risk they took, the emotions of it. And I'm very worried, and I can hear it in her voice, that when this pandemic ends, we're going to find physicians who are really burned out. I mean, burnout's been a big issue with 44% of doctors reporting being burned out and over 400 suicides a year. But we know from the military history that you experience PTSD after the conflict is done. I talked with a physician a couple of weeks ago who had lost four patients in the same day. Imagine the pain, a resident who started the month with six ICU patients, and by the end of the month, all six were dead. The amount of human suffering coming out of this will be great. And if we continue to assume as a norm that doctors never express their emotion, that they never uh, talk about their needs for psychological help, that they're not able to talk about the pain they feel without feeling overly vulnerable, then I think we're going to have an even greater physician crisis. And we know for patients that when doctors are burned out, when they're depressed, when they're emotionally Mm -hmm. having to keep everything inside, they simply can't give the excellence and care that patients need. And I'm hoping that coming out of this, we can evolve that culture to make the change, both for the benefit of doctors and patients. We're going to talk more about burnout after the break. We're talking with Dr. Robert Pearl, author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And we want to hear from you. Are you a healthcare worker who's had an experience of toxic medical culture? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm April Dombowski. We're talking with Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group and author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And Dr. Pearl, you mentioned before the break about burnout and doctors, especially this past year, have just been worked to the bone caring for COVID patients. But You know, surveys show that doctors were already burned out before the pandemic hit. This has been well on its way. Doctors have for a long time been complaining about having too many administrative tasks, working too many hours. And you tell the story in your book about an ER doctor who was caught using narcotics on the job. And when you later asked her why, she said she was bored how how does this fit with all that we're hearing about physician burnout? Burnout is a massive, massive topic that I cover in quite a number of chapters in the book, but I'll try to summarize it very 
I'll say briefly, if you ask physicians why are they burned out, and the studies have been done multiple times, they focus on three areas. The first is they uh, don't get paid enough, which means they have to see too many patients. The second is that they have to complete onerous bureaucratic tasks, such as getting prior authorization from insurance companies. And the third is the clunky computer systems that were designed for billing that literally get between them and the patients. And every one of these explanations is correct. I don't want any listener to think I'm in any way minimizing them. But when you delve a little deeper into the issues, what you see is that the data contradicts some of this. And using as an example, comparing urology and primary care, in which uh, today urologists actually are the most burned out, at least prior to the pandemic, specialties, but primary care is another one with a very high rate of burnout. Urologists earn twice as much as primary care physicians, almost half a million dollars a year. So if the sole cause is not getting paid enough, which translates into seeing too many patients a day, well, why would they be burned out? Because they're receiving twice as much income. And if it's the bureaucratic tasks and it's the computers, how do you explain that urologists have to use the same computers as orthopedists and ophthalmologists who get paid less than they do and have to go to the same authorization, the same bureaucratic tasks, the same computers? So there's got to be something else there. And this is a little bit of what I spoke about in that example. And there's others in the book. And this is the entire I'll call it role of, of esteem and respect and prestige in healthcare and how much of that has diminished, but not diminished because of care delivery, but diminished because of scientific advance and patient expectations and information technology. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, on, back in the 20th century, we didn't know a whole lot about the cause of the disease. We couldn't be sure what caused heart disease, how to prevent and detect cancer. Uh, we didn't have very much technology. I mean, the iPhone wasn't even invented until 20, uh, 2007. So when you look at all of that, you had a very different world. And now you're in an era where we have evidence-based approaches where we have checklists that help avoid medical error. You know, we're in a world today where patients have information from the internet and they want to be taken as, I don't want to say equals, but far less of a paternalistic approach than the past. They're able to book entire vacations once COVID's gone again, where they can do it online themselves and they want that same expectations as consumers and the physician culture, this is, problematic. And so there's drop in prestige from doing these things, even when they lead to better outcomes. Now, they always, it's not that you can always do these things. There are exceptions. There are patients who are so complex, but more and more and more, we're able to do things with better outcomes, but less of this prestige and esteem driven by our sense of being at the top of a hierarchy of professions. And that's what that doctor was talking about, that she was 
taking care of the same problems with enough information, it became less and less challenging. And Sir Michael Marmot, a sociologist from, uh, the Great, uh, from Great Britain, has talked about what happens relative to prestige. Others have looked at what happens when you lose your place in the hierarchy. And what you get is unfulfillment, dissatisfaction, and fatigue, the same symptoms as burnout. And I think we're seeing this confluence of factors. And it's, again, I'll go back to, we have to address the systemic problems, but we also have to evolve the culture and start to value different things, value the ability to avoid disease as much as we do to address it, value the primary care physician as high as we value the interventional cardiologist, the primary care physician is able to prevent the blockage of the coronary artery, whereas the interventional cardiologist can unblock it. These are opportunities that we have to lead the way, and I think in the end, avoid harming both doctors and patients. Yeah, you talk about how, you know, doctors want to be the MVP and that, you know, the cardiac surgeons are the MVP, but the, you know, primary care physicians are, are the team players who, who, people don't really recognize as much the importance that they play. And you tie this back to the pandemic. You know, one of the things we learned early on was that folks with chronic conditions like diabetes or heart disease or kidney failure were more likely to die from COVID-19. And, you know, I think we heard in some of the explanations from doctors, you know, oh, well, you know, the odds were stacked against us. These these patients were already sick or they point to socioeconomic factors like people being low income or living in crowded housing to explain, you know, why certain populations were getting sick. And these are these were all factors that were out of the doctor's control. But you really kind of put a fine point on it, both on this point with primary care but also with the issue of racism in healthcare that and you say doctors do have a role here doctors may say we you know we treat all patients the same but you say the doctors tell a different story what what does i'm sorry you say the data tells a different story what what does the data say about doctors unconscious bias absolutely right april that racism is a great example and i believe that with very, very few exceptions, doctors are not consciously racist. They don't consciously discriminate against some patients. They try to treat everyone the same. But as you say, the data shows that's not the case. When early in the pandemic, when there were not enough testing kits, they tested white patients twice as often as black patients who came to the emergency department with exactly the same symptoms. They gave 40% less pain medication to black patients after the same procedure. There was just an article in the New England Journal of Medicine where they looked at the likelihood of physicians taking care of patients with chest pain, recommending more extensive evaluation and intervention, and they were much more likely to do that for white patients than black patients. Implicit bias is well-documented in a variety of studies, and yet physicians don't see it. You know, it's interesting to me that the 
studies on implicit bias take it all the way back to 20,000 years, you know, way back at a time when if a human form came over the horizon, you had a nanosecond to decide, was this a tribe member that you would embrace or a foe who's likely to shoot an arrow at you and to immediately make a decision which way to go. That's the implicit bias. And you showed a lot more empathy and sympathy to people who look like you. And we could also say, speak the same language as you and uh, worship the same God as you. But now what happens is there is a difference in the care that we provide. And on a podcast recently, I was asked, is implicit bias racism? My response was, it's not racism, but knowing about it and not doing something about it that is racism. And that's what I would say we're at right now. And the physician culture, we don't recognize this despite the data. You mentioned Semmelweis before. I could also talk about um, a variety of other people across history. Borhav, who introduced the thermometer to medicine, and it took 100 years till they were, till doctors were willing to use it to differentiate disease from health because they wanted the human touch to be so much better. They couldn't see the science. And there are enough examples today that I believe is harming both doctors and patients, but more importantly, unless we are able and willing to acknowledge and act on the shortcomings, I don't believe that the system of medicine is gonna change and we're gonna find the problems, whether it's burnout, whether it's racism, whether it's lack of prevention and growth in chronic disease, simply escalating. And I fear that in the medical culture, the physician culture, doctors are feeling like victims expecting someone else to do this for them. And I wrote the book to encourage physicians to move ahead and lead the way. We're talking with Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, he oversaw 10,000 doctors as CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. And now he's written a new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And we want to hear from you. As a patient, have you felt brushed off or shamed by a medical professional? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And let's hear some of these comments now. Beth writes, is the American medical system more a sick care culture rather than a preventative health care program that helps clients prevent disease? I have a number of physician family friends who express frustration at how the majority of their clients want a pill versus changing personal lifestyle changes when it comes to the soaring obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and other preventive issues. Carol writes, Sure, doctors in training work long hours, but my experience is that once they're on established and practiced, they don't work weekends and holidays. I've had some awful experiences in hospitals on weekends when care is delayed because many medical workers aren't there, so things have to wait until Monday or later. Don't compare the hours of residents and interns to what fully qualified doctors are doing. And another listener writes, I had an emergency procedure related to a miscarriage where the doctor was arrogant and rude. He lectured me on birth control that could have prevented my pregnancy, which I wanted, all while I was miscarrying on the table. I love doctors, but this guy was the worst. 
Why be in a field to care for people when you are so unfeeling? Dr. Pearl, I'm going to turn that one over to you. Painful experience there. As always, the listeners have the best questions. Let me try to address each of them. To Beth, the answer is yes, we have a sick care system. And I think what Beth is hitting upon is the three parts to it in this case. Number one, we have a industry that values intervention more than prevention. We have patients who are not able or willing to do some of the things they could do around exercise and diet and uh, taking care of their own health and getting the preventive care that they require. And we have physicians who see their value as the things that doctors uniquely can do, which are these complex interventions, and they undervalue the things that would provide better outcomes. Add 10 primary care physicians to a community, you raise longevity two and a half times more than specialists, but who do we put at the top of the hierarchy? The individuals who do these most complex interventional procedures, many of which have been shown, by the way, to add very little value. In terms of the weekends and holidays, I write about this extensively in the book, and the listener is absolutely right. If you get admitted to a hospital on Friday night, you spend an extra day in the hospital compared to the same diagnosis with an admission on Monday night. Now think about that. It can't be better quality to take an extra day to get better. It certainly is not good service, and cost is very high. Why is that? Well, there's a systemic reason. Doctors, like everyone else, would like to be with their families and taking time away, and they need to do that. Again, I don't want to minimize it in any way, but the culture says that the care is just as good and hospitals are safe places to be, and that's not true. That's where hospital-acquired infections happen, medical errors happen, and again, there's a solution of being able to restructure things So there's time off on other days of the week or other times of the year. We just don't embrace that. The culture allows us to continue to do things the way we used to do them in a very different era of healthcare. And finally, in terms of the last caller, I want to say I'm sorry about your loss. And I'm going to make an assumption, and I could be wrong on this. I never met your physician. He or she might have just been arrogant but they also may have been caught in the doctor culture, which is when a patient has a problem, when a patient dies, when something goes wrong, the doctor often feels guilty, even if it's not their fault, and they react in an opposite way because that's what the culture taught them to do. So if your doctor was not more empathetic and sympathetic, that simply is wrong because you were at a time of major loss. But it's possible that they actually were quite feeling they just expressed it in the most awkward and poor way. I want to bring in a comment on that point. Rebecca writes, I would like to offer an alternative to what Dr. Pearl is saying about physician prestige. That is a very male interpretation. I think if you asked female physicians, prestige is not one of the top problems. Instead, when we are asked to do things that are very bureaucratic, we are not working to the top of our skill level. And that leads to dissatisfaction. We're going to take a call now. Uh, Bob in Marin, go ahead. Hi, I, I think this is a very distorted uh, view of what's going on, actually. 
What, what really is going on is has to do with economics and incentives. Many people go into medicine fundamentally because they saw it as an opportunity for autonomy. As more and more, as more and more systems, automated and otherwise, turn people into widgets to be able to follow algorithms, to be able to be implementing knowledge that may actually have better outcomes, they don't feel good, and the patients don't feel good. But that's a comment, so I'd, I'd like a, a, a reaction. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Pearl, we're, we have just a short time before we go into a break, but do you have a response for Bob? I agree completely, Bob. A lot of this is about autonomy. Physicians like that. They had that in the past, but we may disagree about whether that's just something they prefer or whether it's built into the culture because the antithesis to autonomy is accountability, it's data availability, it's looking at outcomes. And I would say, particularly for the listeners who are not in medicine, If there are two doctors and one of whom achieves an 80% success rate and one a 40% success rate, they would expect that there would be some action taken within the healthcare world to help everyone achieve the better outcome. And I think in the physician culture, each individual should be entitled to do what they want, regardless of what that data shows. And the data certainly shows a huge variation between the people who are able to achieve significantly better outcomes from those who are lagging farther behind. And in the 21st century, I think that we need to be able to recognize that and address it. We're talking with Dr. Robert Pearl, author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. We'll be back right after this short break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm April Dimbosky. We're talking with Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group and author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. We have a few more comments coming in. Adam asks, I'm curious how the shift to single-payer health insurance might offer an opportunity to change the system and the culture. Dr. Pearl? Single payer is a, is a term that's used by a lot of individuals in a lot of different ways. Um, and without any question, our current insurance and coverage system is broken with all of its different permutations and combinations. But I'm not sure that changing how the care is paid is going to make a major impact on the culture. On the other hand, I do believe that in the post-coronavirus era, what we're going to see as a nation is that there's going to be downward pressure on healthcare costs. That the federal government will have borrowed $8 trillion, has to pay back with interest. States by law have to have balanced budgets. And most of the states, not so California that has the Googles and the Apples and the Facebooks, but most states will be facing diminished tax revenue combined with uh, increased expectations around uninsurance and Medicaid. And small businesses who are the major employers in this country 
are really struggling with a third of them saying they can't survive without continued government support. So I think we're going to see some downward pressure. And I think the evolution that needs to happen is not really about who pays the cost, but how is it reimbursed? And in this sense, I believe very strongly that we need to move from a FIFA service system that rewards volume to one that is prepaid, the word often uses capitated, a single payment at the delivery system level to a group of physicians and hospitals. And that when that happens, you're going to start to see some evolution of culture. Because when you're paid in that particular way and now you have a financial accountability, now you start to value prevention, patient safety, avoidance of complication from chronic disease. You start to stop, you stop doing the 30% of things that the Mayo Clinic has shown add little or no value. You start to embrace tools like telemedicine. You find ways to collaborate, coordinate, to integrate. And the culture, what is valued, what is norms that are expected, start to evolve in parallel. And that's the big change that I see. And my big fear is that if we don't do that, and if physicians can't help lead the way, that we're going to actually end up into a rationed, even more two-tier system than today. And I think that would be tragic, both for patients and physicians. We want to hear from you. Come join our conversation about physician culture. What changes would you like to see in the way doctors deliver care? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're going to take another call now. Janie from Pleasanton. Go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, what I'd like to comment about is um, with gender. So I saw a male physician for years, and I was having a lot of stress and and um, probably, you know, hormone issues. And he just wouldn't really address it or just kept telling me I was stressed but really wouldn't get down to it. Until I switched to a woman of color physician, then my care really changed and things got resolved and we had a plan. And, um, and I felt better. So I feel kind of bad that doctors don't have a culture where they can say, you know, maybe a different physician is better for you or, um, you know, there's like maybe too much ego or something involved that they're not really thinking about the outcome, but just their own personal skill level. And, you know, I think that's a culture that really um, could be addressed and, and changed and would provide better care for people if there was some more openness to not feeling like a failure. And Dr. Pearl, you you write about this, about, you know, doctors performing procedures that are fulfilling for them. And you made a change at Kaiser specifically with women's healthcare with OBGYN. Can you tell us what was that policy change? Why did you do it? And what was the doctor's reaction? So when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, my goal was to make us number one in the nation in quality, which at least based upon the NCQA, we were able to accomplish by the end. And it had multiple pieces to it, but one of which was to have superior outcomes after surgical procedures. I'm a surgeon who fixes kids with cleft lip and cleft palate, and I recognize the opportunity based upon having more experience, doing more cases, and how you quickly move up the learning curve and achieve better results than if everyone does a little bit of everything. So I went to the chiefs of OBGYN. I was aware of the fact that there are two ways to do hysterectomies to take out the uterus, one of which is a long abdominal incision, 
It requires that the patient spend three days in the hospital and six weeks recovering. The alternative is what's called laparoscopic, done through telescopes. It's an, often an outpatient procedure. It can't be done for every woman needing a hysterectomy, but for a lot of women, it's the, for the majority of women, it's the recommended approach. And I asked the chiefs of OBGYN, 16 of the 18 are women, well, what would you demand that the surgeon operate on you have done last year? And they all said the same number, somewhere between three to four a month, 35 to 50 a year. I didn't ask who, who it should be, just how many would they had to have done before you'd let someone uh, do this procedure on you. Across the United States today, half of the doctors doing this operation do fewer than 10 a year. We don't provide the same care to patients as we demand for ourselves, and that's still embedded in the physician culture. We have minimum standards of excellence rather than having optimal standards of excellence. And that's embedded in the physician culture. And I'll say it again, because I think it's so important that every doctor hear it. There are systemic reasons why that happens, having to do with income, having to do with credentialing and privileging. But there's also this piece that is cultural how we view ourselves. If we dabble a little bit everything, we think of ourselves as being better doctors than if we narrow what we do and do a lot more in that particular arena. And that's what's actually better for patients. And I think over time will be better for doctors as they achieve better outcomes with fewer complications. Part of the physician culture that you write about is the language that doctors use. And there are some parts in the book where you actually do some translation for us. So, for example, if a surgeon says to a patient, you know, operating is your best chance, you say that what he often really means is nothing I do will cure you, but I feel as though I have to try something. Why do doctors skirt around the truth like this, especially when it comes to death and dying? As we mentioned earlier, for physicians, death is a failure. That's how we learn in the culture. And again, it makes sense. We battle death our entire careers, at least in a lot of the specialties where we work, trying to overcome cancer, trying to avoid infectious diseases, trying to address things like heart attacks and strokes. But we never really learn how to work with a patient to help a patient in dealing with death at the end of life. We often tell patients, uh, you never know. I've seen miracles. Well, those things are all maybe true, but if the odds are one in a hundred or one in a thousand, what most people will end up being better off is if they make a different set of decisions. You know, I write in the book about a a uh, woman that I know who got told three days before her death that uh, the diagnosis was not a death sentence. Well, it was. It wasn't a death sentence because no one's sentencing her, but she had a terminal illness and she had to recognize and do the things in her last few days, maybe for the people left behind in terms of her wills, in terms of her messages, in terms of her forgiveness, in terms of her love and that gets taken out of the experience. I think I'm, I'm really pushing in the book for a broader culture 
To me, it's not a question of being a toxic culture. It's that it's a narrow culture. And it's a culture that I think needs to evolve so that we can talk about feelings, so that we can engage better with patients in combined decision-making, in addressing end-of-life issues, in valuing their time and convenience, and in being able through that process to evolve the system of care you know, cost. Sorry about that. Dr. Dr. Pearl, on that point, you know, about death and dying and, and patients actually wanting to have more say about how things go in their last weeks or months of life. Several years ago, California passed the End of Life Option Act. This was a law that allows terminally ill patients to take lethal medication to hasten their death. And after this law passed, you received dozens of emails from doctors at Kaiser saying they didn't want to do it. So, you know, how did you overcome this piece of physician culture at Kaiser? What did you do to try to change things in practice? One of the challenges of being a leader is making certain that you can respect people's moral values. And in that sense, the people who felt that uh, doing something, whether in this case it was uh, helping patients to relieve their misery in a way that previous generations would have seen as problematic, or whether it is uh, uh, areas around women's rights and uh, uh, decisions around abortion, these are often ethical issues, and I believe that leaders need to be very respectful of that. And at the same time, what sometimes happens is that people don't want to do these actions just because they don't want to do them. It's not on a purely ethical basis. It just feels like it's another task, something they have to do that they don't really want to spend the time having the detailed conversations, making sure the decisions are the right ones. And that's where I think it's so important to provide them with assistance, having palliative care experts who can help in that particular process, being able to have open conversations about the patient's experience and having families come in and talk about the difference that it made, particularly when they might've had one individual dying a morbid, um, very gruesome death and someone else being able to have a death with dignity. So it's a, very much around having a leadership structure that can engage in the conversations, that can bring out the emotions, the experiences, and then being sure that you're respectful of all individuals and simultaneously making available to those who are going to help to meet the patient's needs, the assistance and the support that they require. We're going to go to another caller, Mickey in Berkeley. Go ahead. Hi, this is a question, a comment. I was in the ER last weekend with uh, pressure in the left eye. My eye, my, the only that eye was highly dilated upon entrance. My blood pressure was 210 over 98. I have low blood pressure. It took about an hour and a half before a doctor came and examined me. And when they did, he was examining my eyes, of course. And he said... Um, I want you to know this is a very dangerous situation and potentially life-threatening, and left the room. I've been doing really well up until that point of meditating, watching my breath, knowing this was somewhat serious or could be, but, you know, very chill. But I literally started shaking within a few minutes after he left. 
he didn't put it in any context like, you know, there's other things this could be or these are the things it could be. This is what we're ruling out. This is what we'll do for you. You're in good hands. Glad you came in. I mean, it would have taken maybe 45 more seconds to put it in a context instead of just hitting me over the head with, well, this is dangerous on life threatening situation. It felt like, okay, and you're now you're on your monitors and the monitors will do what they need to do and they'll see if your brain blows up. But, you know, there was just no context or another. I understand that doctors in the ER need to say when things are dangerous, but it didn't have to happen that way. So this is a comment. Thank you for that comment, Mickey. Uh, I'm going to read another comment. Linda writes, doctors are not proactive. They don't inform patients about what they need when. Patients are left to diagnose themselves or wait until something serious occurs, then get a lecture about not coming in sooner. Not being a doctor, I don't know what preventative tests I need and when to get them. And Dr. Pearl, I'm, you know, also in your book, you mention a scene from Seinfeld, and I'm actually going to play a clip from it because it's related to these points that our callers are making about patients. Um, In this scene, Elaine is sitting in an exam room waiting to see a doctor, and she peeks over at her medical chart, and someone has written difficult. Elaine, you shouldn't be reading that. Now tell me about this uh, rash of yours. Um... Well, it's, it's, you know, I noticed that someone wrote in my chart that I was difficult in January of 92. And I have to tell you, I remember that appointment exactly. You see, this nurse had asked me to put a gown on, but it was a mole on my shoulder. And actually, I'd specifically worn a tank top so that I wouldn't have to put a gown on. You know, they're made of paper. So, Dr. Pearl, I think just kind of grouping these things together, patients are saying, you know, I'm not being heard. And, you know, tell us why you wrote about this scene in your book. What are you what role do you think patients should play with their doctors to try to counteract some of this physician culture? First, I'm really enjoying hearing from the listeners because what they're talking about is exactly what the book describes And they've said it far better than I could have said it as an author. So I thank them for doing so. Uh, I have a chapter on why patients need to be speaking up and asking difficult questions. I don't see it as a difficult patient. I see it as, as an informed patient asking for the things that they would otherwise ask elsewhere. Because as your listeners have talked about, the culture doesn't support those I mean, I was very moved by the patient with high blood pressure and a bulging left eye. She had a problematic situation. I would assume she'd be afraid. I'm surprised she was so calm before the doctor made the comments and left the room. It would be so easy to reassure her about the things that were going to be done and let her understand what was going to be happening. That's just not valued. And that's why the chapter on the nine sets of questions We don't have time for all nine, but I'll give you three examples. I think for a lot of problems, when you see a physician and you need to come back to have some type of follow-up done, you want to be asking, are there alternatives to my missing another day of work and school, coming to the office to get the care? How do I do this with text message? How do I get it with secure email? 
How do I get the information with a telephone call, with a video visit? There's so many ways we could be doing this. And sometimes the doctor will say, it's not possible. I've got to re-examine that part and see how tender it is or be able to lay my hands on in some fashion or another. But often there are alternatives. When the, when the physician's going to be doing a procedure, as you pointed out earlier, you want to know how many of these did you do last year? What's the worst complication you've had? Because the informed consent lists everything that's possible, but you want to know what's the worst complication. And what are my chances of getting better? Is it 95% or 5%? Because you need to make an informed decision. And the traditional culture of medicine is one of very paternalistic. Dr. The Pearl. Doctor telling the patient. And the final one is the end of life issues. And here we want to be able to say, will I get have the pain control that I need? Will I be able to get the care Dr. that I Dr. Pearl, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to leave that one. Some really good advice from Dr. Pearl about how patients can take back control over their health care from physician culture. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Pearl, author of the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. You've been listening to Forum. I'm April Dimbosky. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.